Hi, my name is John Torpy, and I'm director of the Ralph Bunch Institute for International Studies at the Graduate Center of the City University of New York. Welcome to International Horizons, a podcast of the Ralph Bunch Institute that brings scholarly expertise to bear on our understanding of a wide range of international issues. Today, we examine the role of multilateralism as a strategy for, for increasing the influence of the global South. In order to explore that terrain, we're fortunate to have with us today Professor Jacqueline Braveboy Wagner, Professor of Political Science at the Graduate Center of the City University of New York, as well as in the Colin Powell School of Civic and Global Leadership at the City College of New York. She's a specialist in foreign policy, diplomacy, and global development, particularly with respect to small states and specifically Caribbean states, as well as the nations of the global south in general. She has authored or co-authored uh, or edited 11 books, including most recently the Historical Dictionary of U.S.-Caribbean Relations, uh, Diplomatic Strategies of Leading Nations in the Global South, Institutions of the Global South, Small States in Global Affairs, the Foreign Policies of the Caribbean Community, and uh, the Foreign Policies of the Global South, Rethinking Conceptual Frameworks. Um, needless to say, she's a very productive scholar on these issues. Um, she served as a consultant on United Nations and CARICOM, the United States, Caribbean and Latin American government uh, and intergovernmental projects. She served as the first Caribbean-born female president of the Caribbean Studies Association and in many other valuable and important academic roles. Thank you so much for taking the time to be with us today, Jacqueline Braveboy Wagner. You're welcome. Nice to be here. Great to have you. Thanks very much. So uh, let's start right in. I mean, I think, you know, this term, the global South is now uh, widespread, obviously, but we used to speak of the first, second, and especially the third world. Uh, but now we speak uh, of the global South and perhaps somewhat less so of the global North. Um, can you explain the evolution in the terminology and tell us uh, what it tells us about the world? Yes, uh, certainly. And I think it's important that you said less so the global north. All right. And I'll explain why. Um, whenever we think about the third world today, we tend to think about bad governance, poverty, banana republics, a term that I absolutely don't like, right? Failed states, etc. cetera. Um, we always think of it in a pejorative way. And even within the third world, I am from the third world, whenever we want to denigrate something, we will say, uh, this is very third world, right? Uh, this person has very third world values and so on. The point is that it wasn't like this. When, it, when we originally used the term uh, third world, the intention was never to make it into something that was equated with poverty or equated with bad governance, the third world was simply a term with uh, uh, that one could uh, use as a reference for all countries that did not want to align with either the Eastern Bloc or the Western Bloc. In other words, non-aligned or unaligned countries. And it has its ideological reference way back uh, to France in the 1940s 
when there were political parties which were distinct from the Gaulle's Rassemblement Populaire Francaise or the Fourth Republic. Uh, another for, another uh, referent was the idea of the Third Estate, which, uh, repre- which was a reference to the underrepresented bourgeoisie in the French Revolution. So, you know, there were precedents for using the third idea. In modern times, it's thought to have been coined by Alfred Sauvy, a Frenchman, in 1952. And again, it was used. He used it to describe unaligned nations. And over time, uh, when we consolidated its use, it was through... Uh, many conferences, many multilateral conferences, such as the Bandung Conference of 1955, historic Afro-Asian conference, uh, the not, first non-aligned conference of 1961, the first conference of the United Nations Conference on Trade and Development in 1964, and all of these subsequent conferences in a very exciting decade of the 1960s, uh, we call it the decolonization de- uh, decade when third world countries were becoming independent. So the use of the term uh, uh, was to indicate, to, all, to point to all of these exciting developments among countries which were neither Western nor uh, um, Soviet, belonging to the Soviet bloc. Unfortunately, over time, because these countries were primarily developing countries, and uh, many of them were very poor. Uh, there were democratic deficits uh, and, and many other development problems, so corruption, etc. So somehow third world began to mean not just that I'm not aligned, but that perhaps my, uh, the values were were not the values of the first world or, or even the, the second world. So by the 1970s, the United Nations uh, began to use South, right, as a preferable term. You, you can see it in the documentation. I mean, there isn't a, a, an immediate split, you know, between uh, the time when Third World was used and the time when South uh, began to be used. But uh, we see it by the 1970s, and the 1970s was a very, very important time that we can we consider the heyday of the developing countries at the United Nations. And at that time, the North and the South entered into a dialogue in, uh, with the intent of creating a new international economic order. So there was a lot of a lot going on at the UN, a lot of negotiation going on. And at that time, all of that was phased in terms of North meeting South, North sitting with South uh, to determine a new order. Uh, the non-aligned movement established a South Center. You'll see a lot of a lot of uh, of reference to South in uh, environmental and other uh, documentation. Um, however, by the 1980s, this Southern excitement, the heyday, and the solidarity of these countries uh, began to fade. Uh, there was a recession. There was the onslaught of uh, nationalistic um, uh, ideologies. There was uh, a push toward the liberalism, which was heavily promoted, especially by President Reagan in the, the United States. And uh, so the, the countries began to fracture, and there was this this 
uh, division among these countries, which suggested that perhaps there wasn't really a South, or there wasn't really even a Third World. Uh, and it was only after the Third World uh, the, world, the Cold War ended that we began to see a sort of reinvigoration of the idea of of a community among these countries and then we referred to it as the global south. It's obvious that the intent of the word global was simply to point to the fact that we have uh, now a new world all right, in which there's a heightened sense of globalization so globalization global, right? Um, that was the idea. The idea was that rather than north-south, as we had before, the south was, was truly integrated into the globe in this new era. And this is what Global South really points to, where it suggests, always suggests to me, the whole idea that the south is not separated from the north. The south is a part of it, is right? It's just global, as globalized, right? And as integrated as uh, as the North is, I don't think that we people refer very much to global North. The, you know, you would uh, you see it when uh, let's say in books, etc., uh, where you will see global South versus global North. But I, I've hardly ever seen in UN documentation or international organizations this idea about global North, because again, I think so, although it is. It is logical to say the South is counterposed against the the North. Um, I think there is a suggestion there of that division which uh, we had in the North-South era, and I don't think that one wants to really recreate that so much. The idea is really to focus on the South and to focus on on what these nations are doing, rather than to just uh, make this uh, make it seem as though there's a divide between uh, one or the other. And I, I should mention one thing that uh, in the, there's a difference between the policy. Uh, arena and the scholarly arena in much of this, because uh, in, in the policy arena, these terms are adopted. Uh, the UN has many terms for for uh, these countries, right? They're primarily the countries of Africa, Asia, and Latin America. And in UN policy work, uh, Global South would be a sort of overarching uh, uh, rubric, but really the work is done under you know uh, with all sorts of different differentiations such as high developed countries versus medium developed and low developed and you know and human development and uh, and highly indebted countries and you know they're much more specific about the use of terms in terms of you know of their policy making um the scholarly community tends to be a bit obsessed now that they have adopted uh, this the idea of the global south, and I've got to tell you that we in uh, am in international relations, and it took a long time for IR people to even recognize the existence of a global south. But that has to do with the nature of international how international relations is is taught. And I think, uh, as uh, someone mentioned, uh, uh, in a in an article some time ago, my uh, use of the term global south in my 2003 book was one of the earliest, right, in international um, relations. But uh, in the scholarly community, there is a, there's a, a, a lot of debate over the use of the term, and I think that's, that's what scholars do. We debate and we dissect and deconstruct. 
And uh, so there are those, especially I have found in Europe, who uh, don't uh, like the idea of the use of, of this term to uh, to to be territorial as a territorial uh, uh, in the territorial sense of African, Asia, Latin America. Uh, they point to problems such as uh, the geography. I mean, Australia is in the south, right? You know, why say south? There, there are countries, uh, uh, you know, which are northern, but in the south. There are some countries uh, like Brazil and so on, which are uh, 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 very northern in some ways, as well as, as southern, if you equate southern with uh, poverty, which I, I don't do, but which uh, uh, many people seem to do. Um, and so there's all this debate, and I wanted to get uh, to 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 specifically mention that uh, this is this sort of takes the global south away from the policy arena and makes it into a more of an an abstraction, which I absolutely don't uh, um, favor, but which I understand is important in a scholarly way. For example, uh, there, uh, there is the decolonial movement led by Walter Mignolo, who is uh, 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 an Argentinian. And that movement looks at Global South in a, in a very broad way of, you know, emancipate the, the need for, for emancipation from Eurocentrism. Okay, and there are race and gender um, scholars who associate it with the inequities of race and and gender, and if, and uh, those things are important. It's important to consider it that way. But in much of my work, I tend to focus uh, uh, both on the on the theoretical aspect uh, and and on the policy aspect, but perhaps a little bit uh, more on the territorial aspect of Global South, which I still see as, you know, as referring to similarities among the countries that were formerly colonized. So I'm sorry, that's a long way of answering. <laughs> sure. Well, it's a complicated issue. And uh, I guess I want to probe a little bit further. I mean, um, you know, sometimes these uh, concepts or ideas are developed because they kind of, you know, f- offer a useful shorthand that, you know, includes things that maybe shouldn't exactly be included, but they, you know, have a broad kind of significance or a broad kind of, uh, they make a broad kind of sense. Uh, But maybe you could, you know, say a little bit more about, you know, what you see that it is that brings the Global South together. I mean, I think a second ago you were saying, essentially, this is the formerly colonial world. Um, But is that, you know, the way we should think about the Global South? Um, you know, there are these sort of geographical problems, obviously. Uh, if you think of the global south as, you know, uh, Asia, Africa, Latin America, it has a kind of, you know, quasi-racial uh, sort of uh, set of parameters. Um, you know, how, how do you think it, you know, what do you think is the core idea behind the global south? And to what extent is this a kind of, you know, cohesive block, if you like, in the world? or in, in world politics? I think that's a very important question. Um, because if you're thinking of the Global South as a, a group of countries that are similar and uh, sh- share all the, you know, all this total, complete agreement on, on various issues, then that's just not true, never was, 
third world countries were, were never united in that way. So we have to, it, it is perfectly appropriate to ask what then, right? Are, are we talking about when we say uh, global south? What, what unites them? And uh, the global south today, as in the past, is more of a, of a labor union. I think it was Johann Galtung who is a very important peace researcher in in uh, in, in uh, Sweden all right who uh, said that it's a it's a labor union right uh, the members don't necessarily feel exactly alike but they agree on certain things that must be done in order to protect their status uh, etc so it's the same thing with the with the uh, global south these countries are not the same, all right? Uh, regional differences are extremely important. Um, national differences extremely important, and it's always been this way. But they do share a few things which bring them together. One of these, yes, is the history of colonialism, okay? Uh, I think anybody who uh, has any country or any person who has lived under colonialism understands what you're talking about when you talk about the legacy of colonialism. Uh, colonialism has left a legacy in economic areas, political areas. It has left a legacy in, ident- in terms of identity and culture. Uh, your cultures, uh, local cultures were subdued to the colonial metropolitan uh, uh, culture. Um, economically, we had very distorted economies because uh, some countries were completely turned over to cash economies based on plantations and uh, uh, latifundia in Latin America, etc. Um, and so you have this legacy and the political legacy is, of course, very strong. It remains the fact that these countries are dominated. Uh, these countries are still uh, uh, are subjected to sanctions and to all sorts of disincentives by their larger neighbors. Uh, there is hegemony in the international system. The, the, the decision-making, uh, uh, even an international, an international organization such as the United Nations, rests with the larger countries of the world. The Security Council, the, the P5, right, are much more important than any number of countries in the in the General Assembly. And so these are the things which, uh, these legacies, which uh, bring these countries together, uh, definitely historical, economic, the fact that despite uh, uh, many years of independence, uh, most of these countries are still not at the level of the country early in what I call the early industrialized countries. That means the countries of Europe, etc. Um, yeah, you have these, these differences, and this is what brings them together, not to all have the same strategy, but to have an overarching strategy. They may approach it with different tactics, but an overarching strategy uh, and an overarching uh, purpose, which is to, of course, improve their own economic uh, standing, but also their political standing in the world and to gain influence in the in world forums, which they have not had at this point in time. 
I mean, this raises a lot of interesting questions and, and sort of uh, problems for the idea, I guess, of the global south. But one thing that, you know, comes to mind immediately is that, uh, you know, insofar as you're referring to the history of colonization as being kind of a defining feature of the global south, um, you know, that obviously speaks to what happened in Latin America, what happened in much of Africa, uh, and to some degree in Asia. Um, and we went through this period that you described earlier of decolonization, sort of culminating basically in the 1960s. Um, but I wonder now uh, about, you know, another actor on the global scene uh, that wasn't part of that uh, earlier experience of colonization, that is to say the place of China in world affairs now. I mean, China is now playing a huge role in places, some of the places that you've uh, mentioned in Latin America and Africa in particular, uh, but also to some degree in Europe. Um, and I mean, is China part of the global South and how are the countries that are sort of unambiguously, uh, you know, what, some places that we would all agree are in the global South, how are they, you know, just dealing with or responding to the emergence of China as a kind of international uh, player, so to speak? Yes, well, uh, if I may uh, make a little correction, right, if you don't mind. Uh, China considers itself to have been uh, colonized or what we would call imperialized, because you will remember that uh, uh, during the century of humiliation in China, uh, and that century of humiliation has colored a lot of what China does today, uh, during that century, Europeans came in. And the Europeans forced China into submission. Okay, and this century of humiliation resulted uh, in uh, things like unequal treaties, unequal trading treaties. You sure. you'll remember that when the British wanted their opium, they you know they had the opium sure. war. I, yeah, I, I, I maybe misstated what I wanted to say, but what I really wanted to say was not that China wasn't colonized itself yeah. in the previous period, but that 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 it's now in a different position. Yes, I, mean, I don't know how one should describe you know China's role. In, yes. uh, in the world outside of China today? Are they a colonial right. power? Are, I mean, it's not doesn't appear to be a kind of settler colonial uh, yeah. project. And yet yes, I, uh, there I, is enormous influence from China mm-hmm. in mm-hmm. these other countries. Yes, and we always had a little problem with uh, uh, locating China, um, not, not just today, but even a little before this, because China also, if you... Uh, uh, um, uh, remember, has nuclear weapons, for example, when you're talking about being non-aligned, right? You know, you're basically talking about also being anti, right? Uh, the use of nuclear power, etc. Um, so China has always been bigger than the rest of this, right? And uh, and also um, uh, with more economic potential. Everybody knew that once China was uh, allowed to trade and so on freely in the world, it would be it would basically become extremely important. But I want to uh, the reason why I pointed out the century of humiliation and so on is because I wanted to 
to lead in to the fact that China still today identifies itself as a global South nation uh, in terms of uh, its um, relationship with the countries, for ex- the developing countries, it uh, w- which we call the G77, the Group of 77 in the United Nations Conference on Trade and Development. Uh, if you look, you will see that China uh, sits with this group Whenever uh, any documentation is produced, it's from the G77 and China, G77 and China. China is also a big player in terms of uh, the uh, aid, assistance, investment, and so on. And what what I uh, definitely want to point out is that a lot of that investment is done under the norms uh, of SSC, which is uh, um, cooperation, South-South cooperation. And these norms uh, are supposed to be different from the norms of assistance of the northern countries, the traditional norms under which aid uh, aid was given. Aid uh, under the South-South norms uh, involves non-conditionality, meaning not imposing conditions on these countries. It, it, another norm is, uh, is, is localization, meaning that the, the country that is being given the assistance should have a big say in where, the, where it goes, right, and what, what programs and so on uh, should be funded. Uh, and respect, meaning that, uh, uh, you know, there is equality and, and respect among the giver and the, uh, the, uh, the host and the, and the, and the, uh, uh, the recipient. So this kind of norms, which are the, the norms that are considered anti-hegemonic, are promoted and pushed by the South and China is trying to stick to those norms, all right? If it's one word or one, one, one description that, you know, that really riles up the, uh, the donors, the South-South donors, as if you say they are becoming hegemonic. So, uh, of course, there is this concern as to whether China is simply replacing, you know, the U.S. and, and so on in, in terms of its domination of these countries, particularly Africa at this, at this point in time. Uh, there is concern about whether using, uh, whether under the Belt and Road Initiative, China is, uh, simply, you know, assuming a, a position of hegemony, right? Heaven forbid, hegemony, right? Over these countries. Um, but I, you know, I would reserve judgment. We all are reserving judgment on that for the moment because China, of course, uh, is, as, a, as I said, constantly attempting opening itself to the norms of uh, uh, SS, uh, of, of uh, South-South cooperation. So I understand, we understand where that is coming from. Uh, China and India were great powers before the colonial uh, era. All right, India feels the same way. India wants to recover this great power, uh, become a great power again. Um, India's approach is a bit different. It is a poorer country and it is, you know, it is given assistance, but it's uh, not as able and as significant as China. China alarms the United States and so on because of its economic power and because of their geopolitical concerns. But within the, the, the developing world, China is still 
welcomed. There, there are, there are, you know, increasing concerns, and you will find ruminations about uh, about uh, uh, Chinese uh, policies. But up to this point in time, uh, I have to say that most countries are still uh, quite favorable toward Chinese aid and Chinese investment. In fact, they welcome it. Uh, especially because it is not conditional. You know, you don't uh, have to meet in, you know, environmental standards and labor standards and uh, all sorts of, you know, standards. And so who wouldn't take that assistance? So of course, countries are welcome in China. Right. Okay. So I want to move on a bit to a topic that I think you hinted at a little bit in your answer to that question. Uh, and that is something you've written and thought a lot about. And this it's this issue of multilateralism. And I wonder if you could talk about, you know, what that means in the global South, what kind of strategies that's, that entails and how they've evolved and what kind of success they've had with that kind of approach to international affairs. I mean, who are they defending themselves against, first of all? Mm-hmm. Uh, well, I see multilateralism as a foundational strategy for helping the developing countries uh, tangibly in economic, uh, economic and social areas, and uh, in a way, in somewhat even more importantly today, giving them influence uh, in and voice in global forums uh, and, and enabling them to change, to make changes. Uh, and to introduce new norms, right, into the uh, uh, international system. Uh, but multilateralism can be construed in various ways. So I want to be very clear as to what, uh, you know, what I'm talking about. Uh, it's not, when Americans sometimes talk in foreign policy about multilateralism, they, they're referring to, okay, uh, we will sit with the Europeans and, you know, have some sort of cooperative uh, approach. Um, that's it. That is true. That is important. But uh, uh, multilateralism, as as John Ruggie uh, pointed out, he, he was an advisor at, uh, to the UN and he's a scholar, um, pointed out that it misses the point if all you think multilateralism is, is about having more than two countries get together. Uh, he emphasized that multilateralism also contains uh, elements of reciprocity and and generality, meaning, for example, that if you look at the most favored nation clause of the World Trade uh, Organization, that is a multilateral arrangement par excellence because what's happening is every country has to give the same benefits to all their partners. All right, um, any benefit that they give to their to the a favored nation has to apply to all nations. So there's that generalization that is extremely important. I think that I, I lean toward that, and w- with a little bit of allowance for the fact that multilateralism. While it it can be done on general these are general terms, they're general norms, and everything applies to everyone, etc. At the same time, we mustn't think of multilateralism as being altruism. I mean, multilateralism does not mean that you sacrifice 
your self-interest. So countries use multilateral strategies in order to I- increase their, uh, uh, you know, their own uh, economic economies and so on and so forth. Um, this, to me, has been very important to both the Third World and the Global South, right? Um, because uh, in in the early days. Very little would have happened if they did not cooperate. Remember when I talked about the unionist kind of strategy. If they did not work together, they could easily have been picked off, right, by uh, the colonial powers or the former colonial powers. So in getting together and in, in two very important multilateral arrangements, one was the was the uh, non-aligned movement, which began in 1961 and which, of course, also included, was founded by one of the founders was Tito, President Tito of Yugoslavia, who wanted to uh, to not fall completely under the Soviet umbrella. Uh, so the non-aligned movement was very important. Countries getting together and countries agreeing on issues such as, uh, you know, prioritizing decolonization, prioritizing disarmament, prioritizing development. Okay, because after a while they realized that decolonization was was continuing apace. Let us now turn to what we see as neocolonialism in our economies, meaning that our economies still are far too much right focused on sending our exports to uh, to the UK and to France and so on and so forth. We need to work together. And one of the ways in which you work together is regionalism, all right, by us getting together as regions. And a lot of regional integration movements were formed. And that in itself is also, you know, uh, is also multilateral getting together with others in your area to uh, to trade. So uh, that's very important. And the other uh, very important institution was the UNCTAD. Uh, I've mentioned it quite a bit already, the United Nations Conference on Trade and Development, and that was established in the 60s and 64. And uh, and that uh, took uh, the uh, took to heart Right, these economic problems, and has across the years tried to promote fairer trade, fairer condition, better conditions for aid, uh, investment which can help the 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 the, uh, the the host countries rather than just you know profits being repatriated to the north to help the industry, early industrial uh, nations. So I consider that these. These initial, right, uh, multilateral institutions were so important in getting the South to come together, all right, and to work to advance uh, their interests. Subsequently, and you know, I was quite amazed when I was recently doing a report for the United Nations. Okay, uh, this was a report uh, which was uh, um, intended to uh, to celebrate the 40th anniversary of the Buenos Aires Platform of Action. This was a platform of action um, uh, where the uh, early platform where the developing countries came together and talked about assisting each other. Technical assistance, right, among developing countries would be a strategy. Okay, for them to uh, to move forward, and so now forty years later, you're celebrating this, and you're celebrating it under the rubric of South South. 
cooperation because it has now changed, you know, become South-South cooperation, which really means economic and technical cooperation among developing countries. And as I was doing the institutional chapter of that report, I was quite amazed at the advances that have taken place in the post-Cold War period. All right, because earlier on there was a bit of stagnation with all these regional movements and so on. But in the post-Cold War period, there's been this this excitement to create, you know, new regional uh, uh, movements. Uh, some of them had to be revived, and some new ones had to be formed. Right, uh, and Latin America is very much has always been very much ahead of of the curve on all of this. But we have even uh, Asia and Latin America and uh, and Africa. Right, Africa recently, for example, has decided to do something very important, which is to have an African continental. Uh, uh, economic uh, union um, and all of these things. There's so many. I, I was mapping each area of the world and I could not believe the sheer number of regional and sub-regional <laughs> organizations, right? All multilateral, right? Um, that have cropped up. So there's a lot of activity and I, and I don't just mean in the economic sense. Obviously, everybody thinks economics when they think about the developing countries, but in the political sense as well. So many arrangements to try to help uh, uh, countries uh, 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 reduce the amount of, of civil conflict and uh, and interstate conflict and so on in the world. Uh, um, and so I, I'm, I was quite astounded myself by, by what's been created. This is not to say that all of the, all of them are successful, but there are so many. And I'm, uh, and I'm also, I was also pleased to include Central Asia, develop what we call developing Eurasia, because now we see, uh, after the Cold War that the countries that surrounded, surrounded and were dominated by the, uh, Soviet Union, a number of them decided that they they would they would have some luck by joining with other countries. Some joined the non-aligned uh, movement and so on that they would be able to establish a little more uh, establish have a little more influence, independent influence. And so we now include the developing Eurasia region in the global south. Uh, so I think it is pretty exciting. I think one of the the the, the, uh, the countries that actually wants to be an, or participates with the global south, apart from China, is also Turkey, right? Which you uh, w- wouldn't, you know, I mean, Turkey, what it, Turkey is either European or uh, or uh, Turkish, right? <laughs> you know, um, it turns towards the Middle East. It has turned towards the Middle East a lot more, right, uh, than it used to, because of course it has been somewhat rejected by the Europeans. Um, and so they too are trying to to focus, right, on cooperating with the, the Middle Eastern uh, countries. A lot is going on, and I think that multilateralism is clearly the way to go. And if I may, I know it's a long answer, but in another book that I was doing recently, The Diplomatic Strategies of Nations, uh, looking at nations which were trying to achieve influence in the global south, uh, when you looked at all of these countries, one of the platforms that they were using was the multilateral platform. They wanted to be uh, mem- uh, non-permanent members of the Security Council as much as possible. They wanted to participate in peacekeeping operations as much as possible. They wanted to do uh, things which would bring them visibility, not just in their regions, but in the world. <laughs>
So multilateralism is an ex- extremely important strategy for developing countries. Right. Lots of interesting and important developments. And as you said uh, earlier on, I mean, it, it's the third world, the global south is not what we used to, what we used to think about it, I think. In no. <laughs> and as our colleague Branko Milanovic has written, you know, the yeah. relative inequalities uh, between the, you know, former first world, former third world, global north, global south, uh, is not as great as it used to be. And uh, increasingly, the global south, uh, you know, is becoming wealthier, the degrees of poverty have declined. And indeed, you know, as a result, they're, you know, catching up with the kind of disease burdens that we have in the global north. You know, they're yes. dying less, their their disease, of the uh, burden of disease is less and less the, you know, kind of historic uh, burden of infectious diseases and more and more the diseases of the wealthy parts of the world. Yes. But um, what I, I wanted to ask before we go uh is a question about the situation in which we find ourselves in the United States and its relationship to these developments. I mean, we're on the cusp of a uh, transition from one administration to another, and I wonder whether you might say a little bit about how you think uh, things may change and what you you know expect from the new administration relative to the global South. Uh, yeah, and uh, if you don't mind me, just giving one minute to what you uh, what you said about the advancement of the developing country. There's no question that they have uh, faster have had a faster growth rate over the last uh, decade than many countries in the uh, in the so-called developed world, and that many of them are proceeding and moving ahead to first world status. Singapore, for example, is certainly a first world country. But I, but let, I don't want to overdo it in the sense that there are still those inequities, and this is why they have to continue working together to to fight it. There is still more poverty, right, in the developing countries than in the in the developed world. And it also came to me as you talked about disease. Yes, there uh, one of the big problems now. That, that everybody has to tackle is what we call NCDs, right? Uh, um, non-communicable diseases, heart attacks, and so on and so forth, obesity, etc. And those things have to be tackled. But it also occurred to me that in the pandemic that we are, uh, are experiencing right now, we are seeing, okay, uh, some of the uh, these uh, inequities. But we're, we're, we're uh, in terms of the distribution of vaccines. If I uh, may just add that, uh, you know, add that in there that uh, uh, what's happening, for example, in the drug area is that the uh, uh, India and others are asking for a, a release, if you will, from the from the uh, um, agreements on what we call the TRIPS agreements, the agreements by uh, by which uh, um, you protect right patents and so on, so that uh, we can have these vaccines uh, distributed to other parts of the world, right, to Africa and Asia and Latin America, um, uh, cheaply, right, and uh, uh, and that is, you know, is. is 
been opposed by some of the uh, the drug companies. I mean, everybody realizes that the world's health is at stake, but they've still been opposed in, uh, to some degree. So we still have these inequalities. For example, where is the research done on on drugs, R and D, right, <laughs> etc. Um, and and these drugs then have to be uh, sent to these other countries. So I think we still have a lot of things to deal with. Uh, in terms of Mr. Biden's approach, and this is interesting because I did a, a, um, a, 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 an interview recently. Uh, the Caribbean countries are concerned about Biden. And, and one of the things that, uh, <laughs> that one of the questions that sort of surprised me was that I was asked whether it is true that Democratic Republicans have been less friendly to the Caribbean than Republican administrations. I found that a bit startling. And I said, uh, it has nothing to do with the actual ideology, maybe a little bit of the ideology of the Republicans, which uh, have, who have never uh, favored, um, never used to, fa- uh, used to, they used to favor free trade, uh, and the Democrats used to protect uh, uh, their trade. So the Democrats used to be more protectionist, and now it's, it's changed. Uh, so everybody is concerned, I realize, about whether, uh, whether Mr. Biden, right, really uh, would have a program that would favor things like free trade. Right, you know, or favor um, some of the developments that uh, that the, the global South countries uh, uh, want. Right, clearly, climate change is something which most of them are into, and he's very much into that, and that's wonderful. Um, but uh, there is concern. There are concerns about uh, about uh, uh, the policies. What would be the policy towards Iran? What is the policy towards Saudi Arabia? I have been in Saudi Arabia uh, quite a, a lot recently for personal reasons. Uh, there are changes there that are occurring under uh, the young prince, um, and of course, nobody would say that it is a one. It is not an authoritarian country, but you want to make sure that you're not imposing some sort of of uh, of, of approach that will uh, will cause these the the recent advances, such as women driving, etc., to be to be pulled back. So each country has its its own. Uh, Concern, right? Uh, China, obviously, uh, you know, are concerned about that, about you know what kind of approach that uh, that Biden will take. And I can only say that, as far as the uh, Caribbean is concerned, right, the big concern would be Cuba, and the question would be, are we going to be opening out to Cuba again? There's Venezuela, which is another big issue. What is going to happen there? Are we, you know, uh, are sanctions going to continue? And um, a lot is, uh, you know, is is being discussed in terms of whether we're go- you have an Obama three, the, the third term of Obama, uh, because it is not totally clear that Obama, Obama's foreign policy around the the world was that successful. So I can't answer the question about ev- the global South as a whole unit, but because I think there's a whole unit, they will benefit from more multilateralism. But each individual region, all right, has its concerns. And I don't think anybody's exactly jumping for joy at the moment, other than Europe. Uh, they will, you know, everybody's sort of waiting to see what would be the changes, right, that uh, that take place. 
Absolutely. Well, this has been a fascinating discussion about, you know, the rise of the global south and its uh, future prospects, at least for the near term. I want to thank uh, Professor Jacqueline Braveboy Wagner for sharing her insights about the global south with us. Uh, I want to thank Christo Voinoff for his technical assistance. This is John Torpy saying, uh, glad you were with us and look forward to having you with us the next time on International Horizons. Thank you Thank very you. much. Thanks Thank so much. You.